Jason Matthews uh, joins me. I'm Tyler Axness. Uh, each and every week we try to recap what the hell happened. Jason, welcome back, man. How was your week? It was good. How was yours? I have wild. Yeah, it was, it was all right. Um, you know, I mean, it, it, we're in this weird time, which things are going by the time's going by so fast, but ultimately so slow at the same time. Uh, the fact that it's halfway through July I know. is, uh, something to behold. And there's a lot of decisions. I know, uh, locally in North Dakota talking about schools reopening all that, but obviously we try to recap, uh, during this podcast, what happened nationally and full disclosure, because of our schedules, the listeners out there, we, we record this a Friday morning and publish, you know, uh, over the weekend. And, you know, Jason, you've been involved in politics. I have been involved in politics. There's a little thing called the Friday news dump in which people want to uh, dump out into the world all the things that they know is going <laughs> to cause a backlash Friday evening. So they'll think people uh, ignore it. And we fell victim of that, I think, the last two weeks. Last Friday, after we recorded, though, this was a big one, Roger Stone's uh, commutation from uh, the White House. Big story, a lot of ramifications. What's your takeaway? For anybody, uh, any weekday can be garbage day, but in politics and public relations, uh, Friday is always garbage day, particularly Friday <laughs> afternoon at around after three o'clock is garbage day. Uh, my, my take on, on Roger Stone is very simply this. Um, you will be hard-pressed to find um, an example of more blatant abuse of the commutation power and the pardon power of any president than what you saw with, with what happened with Roger Stone last week. That's not an exaggeration. That's not hyperbole at the height of Watergate or the depths of Watergate, depending on how you looked at it, Richard Nixon never considered uh, commuting the sentences of all of the principal figures uh, or giving a pardon uh, to them. Uh, what, what Donald Trump did was a blatant abuse of the commutation power. And what Roger Stone comes out and says is that, yeah, I've got, you know, I've got dirt on Donald Trump, uh, and, and I haven't squealed on Trump. So I'm keeping it quiet. This is like, this is like a scene out of the Godfather. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and what, what Trump did in pardoning or in, in commuting stone sentences, the reason he didn't pardon him is because if you would have, if you pardon an individual, you wipe the slate clean from them. They've already been tried. They've already been convicted for the crime, which means that they um, are still free to talk. The government can go and, and compel testimony from them, and they don't have uh, Fifth Amendment protection anymore um, because, because they don't need to worry about self-incrimination. But if you commute somebody's sentence, you commute their sentence, they stay quiet. <laughs> and and that, that, is the, that is the telltale sign here. Uh, and what, what was so depressing about it, uh, and of course, this is just yet again, another example of, of what's happened to our politics, particularly what's happened on the Republican, to the Republican Party, is you only had two people, two, two senators that stood up mm -hmm. and blasted the decision. Uh, right. It was Mitt Romney, and he was followed by Pennsylvania Senator um, Pat Toomey. And what did Trump do? He attacked both of them on Twitter. Right. And Fox News on Saturday morning put up on their main page, blasting Romney, saying Romney sided with the Democrats. I did. I did see that. And, um, you know, in this, in these conversations, you're, you're the analyst. I'm, I'm the commentator. You can 
read my stuff. You can go and listen to my radio show on KFGO. That's one thing in North Dakota that frustrates the living hell out of me is the fact that you've got, you've got two United States centers, one that is all in on Donald Trump, Kevin Kramer. I mean, he, he declared it here in Shields Arena in Fargo, an awkward hug. Please embrace me, Donald. Well, he's not going to say anything, but there's a John Hoven out there that, you know, tries to be middle of the road and yet there's nothing. There's not a peep out of any of this. And it comes down to norms and, and what the legacy and the enabling has done. I mean, we're watching the norms of the United States kind of slip away. And this being the latest one, I mean, it got uh, Robert Mueller, who was uh, obviously a key figure in the first uh, term of this administration, the investigation to, to submit an op-ed saying now Roger Stone is still you know, a convicted felon uh, and, and broke his silence. Now we might be hearing more from him if you've been following Lindsey Graham's uh, approach. But the, the, the norms of this, I think, demand people in positions of elected office to actually speak up and say something. And we, like you said, we only got two on, uh, on the Republican side to do that. Tyler, when Russia was free from communist, from its communist yoke, after the end of the Cold War, they put together in the 1990s a constitution that was widely praised around the world. It was reviewed by legal experts, um, some of the world's finest uh, legal and political theorists and experts helped Russia draft the constitution. The constitution had everything in there. It had three separate branches of government. It had, it had, um, it had checks and balances. But what ended up happening today what do you see in Russia today? You see a country that is by all accounts a totalitarian regime. Mm -hmm. What holds a country together, what holds a political system together are norms. And the norms are very simply guardrails. And that is you are not going to go past these guardrails. These are protections that are in place. And these are unwritten, understood, widely accepted norms that this is not acceptable behavior. If you're, you want me to be the analyst, I'll be the analyst, but I'm also going to give my opinion here. If you're sitting there as a Republican, as a partisan, and you're defending what Donald Trump did last Friday night in commuting Roger Stone's sentence, then you will have no problem then when a future Democratic president does the same thing. If you were sitting there in July of 2016, harping on the fact that Bill Clinton visited with Attorney General Loretta Lynch on the tarmac in Phoenix for 30 minutes, saying that they orchestrated a cover-up. But you're not criticizing what Donald Trump did last Friday night. Then you don't care about our legal system or Democratic norms. All you care about is who, who's your guy on the field. And that's the problem. That's the slippery slope. And we're beyond slippery slope stage here. We're now, uh, we're heading downhill very fast because every time you remove a guardrail, you have to realize the other party is then going to do the same thing when given the opportunity. And when that happens, then what ends, the end result is your system of government completely collapses. Your, your constitution is nothing more than words written on a page. 
Are, are you suggesting that there's uh, inconsistencies and a bit of hypocrisy in partisan politics when it comes to this law and order, Jason, haven't you heard? That's what it's, it's like going to be in Casablanca. I'm shocked. There's gambling going on yeah. in this establishment, you know, but I want to take it a step further because last Friday was the stone thing, breaking that norm this Friday. Uh, it's being reported out of Portland. I mean, we know of the protests that have been mm-hmm. going on since the murder of George Floyd, uh, Portland, uh, you know, continuing uh, all these weeks later um and now the reports coming up by their uh their public radio out there i believe um that there has been unmarked uh you know officials federal officials coming in basically taking people off the streets detaining them questioning them in unmarked uh rental vehicles mm-hmm. uh you know without any identification not identifying who they are to uh, local officials they're asking those questions seems to me like this is a very troubling uh pushing of another norm this should be front page news across the united states this is third world stuff uh, these are federal officials that refuse to identify themselves, that have their faces covered. They're going up, they're pulling pe- protesters off the street, putting them in the unmarked uh, vehicles. Most of them are minivans, and they're driving off in the middle of the night. Kidnapping. This is, yeah, I mean, it's, is, it's kidnapping. This is the stuff that you saw in Argentina. This is the stuff you saw in Chile in the 1970s. All right? This is the stuff that we would condemn as a country if this happened in other in other nations our government would issue issue blistering attacks we would have our ambassador talking to the leader of those countries this is so troubling on many levels because at the end of the day it's civil liberties it's protection now there are there, I've, I've seen reports uh, this morning that there's speculation that federal officials have individuals that have infiltrated these groups that are out there, and what they're doing is they're going out there and they're taking these undercover agents out. Well, that that's one thing. But the other thing is, I'm not hearing anybody. And of course, this is Friday. This is you know this this has happened yesterday and particularly last evening. Um, and we were, were recording this on Friday morning. I haven't heard anything yet from members of Congress wanting to know what's happening here, but there, there has to be, there has to be accountability. I know that the state of Oregon is going to federal court to try to get information out of the justice department, uh, as to the identity of these officials and what's going on. Uh, and, in what I'm hearing right now or just seeing in reports that are coming across is the justice department is dragging their feet. Uh, if we accept this then God help us. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, you have unmasked uh, or unmarked individuals coming in, like I said, ba- kidnapping citizens. I mean, wasn't there a whole, uh, you have to have reason for arrest, detainment, you know, the, the yes. whole Miranda you rights, but you know, it's just, it, it's, it's very troubling to see what's going on out there. And you're right. Not front page news. Instead, we're talking about the Goya beans that are on the, you know, know, the, the desk. Know. Like Jesus. I, I, I I want to come back and and give you a little historical context here. Uh, Why this matters. Um, Well, why this matters is in in the 1970s and early 1980s, there was a military coup in Argentina. And in Argentina, they had uh, unmarked vehicles, masked federal 
uh, officials uh, that would go in and take people out of their homes and they would put them into these vehicles and drive off in the middle of the night. And what ended up happening in the 1980s after the uh, Falkland Islands War when the military junta was deposed and democracy was restored in Argentina, they found out that hundreds of these people uh, were put onto helicopters, flown out over the Atlantic Ocean, and were then pushed out, out of the helicopter, never to be seen or heard from again. Wow. Now, <laughs> that is in the extreme, all right? Mm -hmm. There's no way we're comparing that to what's going on right now in Portland. We still have a system where you have to find out what's going on. They're, the courts are going to get involved here. Congress needs to step up here. But why we, I bring that up is that is another example of the slippery slope. If you accept that kind of behavior, whether it is a Democratic or Republican administration, where does that lead to? Where does that lead to? And I'm going to push back. We always, we always have to think of the worst case scenario. Well, and you say Congress needs to step up, and you and I just got done talking about the, the pathetic uh, absence of Congress from the breaking of the norms with Roger Stone. So I'm not going to be holding my breath for the United States Senate, at the very least, to stand up and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, we need some answers here, you know, because they're out there, you know, we're going to do the subpoena of Hunter Biden. You know, they're still trying to do that uh, track instead of really diving into, I think, the very troubling things that have been going on underneath the current administration that's going uh, on right now. And I, I think there's legitimacy in being concerned of what you're seeing in, in Portland and wondering, OK, well, are they trying to test the bounds of which they can get away with stuff and what's to stop them from going aside from uh, Portland and, and yeah. going to other cities that have had ongoing marches and protests. And one thing that, that I always tell my students when I begin every, every semester, I tell my American government students, I give them two quotations. I give them a quote from uh, former New York Senator, the late Daniel Patrick Moynihan, which is, if you have contempt for your government, you will get contemptible government. <laughs> and the second quote that I give is from the late conservative columnist, Charles Krauthammer, who said, you can have the most advanced and efflorescent of cultures, get your politics wrong, however, and everything stands to be swept away. This is not ancient history. This is Germany, 1933. And I've been thinking a lot on those two quotes um, over the last few weeks. Because what you're seeing, particularly on, the, on, on Krauthammer's observation, is we've gotten our politics wrong. When you get your politics wrong, uh, norms are shattered. And, and, and sometimes they're shattered uh, quietly. Sometimes they are just allowed to erode over time. Uh, we get numb to um, the latest news coming out of Washington. Uh, if you took a look at the Roger Stone, the reaction to Roger Stone's commutation, um, you know, people just, it was, a, it was a Friday night in July. I mean, that's why you take, that's why you break that kind of news, uh, it, you know, on a Friday evening in July, because nobody's paying attention. Um, but, but what ends up happening over time is you quickly realize there are no guardrails anymore. Uh, and when you, when you don't have any norms, your democracy, your democracy is in jeopardy. And when you get your politics wrong, people die. I mean, let, 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 let's, look at the, let's look at what we've seen this week with coronavirus. This is a failure of leadership. 
the most blatant failure of leadership we've seen in this country uh, in memory, in living memory here. And it's not just at the federal level. We've talked a lot about the the politicalization of this of this response at the federal let's just look at the state level as well this week in florida they were averaging 15,500 new cases a day florida's population is 23 million um texas was averaging 9,000 cases a day germany with a population of 83 million, around 83 million, was averaging only 400 cases a day. If Florida was its own country, it would, ha- it would be number four uh, for nations in the world with the highest rates of COVID. Just to put that into perspective, at the end of the day, and this goes back and this confirms also uh, what you have from Daniel Patrick Moynihan. If you have contempt for your government, you have contemptible government. At the end of the day, uh, this is an abject failure of government. Now you have the governor of Georgia, who is uh, so much for local control, right. who is overriding counties and cities that are putting in mask mandates, and he's, he's taking them to court. This is because what you have is this this pervasive politicalization of our culture that permeates onto every issue here. And as a result of that, governments are not on the same page. They're not working together and people are dying as a result of this incompetence. And I'm sure the, the governor down in Georgia, along with his campaign flyers talking about local control, also is pounding his chest in the table and talking about how pro-life he is as well. Yeah, I'm sure, no doubt about that. But, and it's the, the, the politics of it, which is just embarrassing that it's even debatable. Cause you know, I think last week we talked about, um, all oh, my rights. Well, what about your responsibilities? I asked that question on, uh, ND explains my Facebook page. And if you go read the comments though, cause I said, explain to me, explain to me why you've got an issue to try to protect not only you, but your neighbors, your, your family, uh, your, your friends. And, and you're simply being asked to just wear a face covering when you're out in public and getting your groceries. And, uh, to summarize, uh, the response from those that are uh, trying to rationalize it for us, uh, yeah, just generally speaking, I mean, my takeaway was selfishness and, uh, uh frail, uh, egos. I, I mean, there, there is, there is no, we're all in this together. It's just like, well, I'm not going to fall victim to all this, uh, cultish behavior because I'm not a sheep type thing. And it just, it's, how did we get to this point in which in, we have a global health pandemic? You're seeing 140,000 Americans dying and it's just, nah. Nah, it's not that real. Well, we've always had a a war on expertise, uh, particularly in the last 50 years. Uh, And we talked about this last week. I always said you've always had about 30, 35% the tinfoil hat brigade in society. But but what's really been the accelerant here is social media. I'm I'm firm believer in that. You know, Twitter went down earlier this week um, for about four hours and the world rejoiced. (laughs) (laughs) they they looked up from their phone and realized you know what it's a beautiful day outside oh my gosh my 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 significant other sitting here my children are here (laughs) how long have you guys been here um you know the um arizona republic uh of course arizona is, is also a hot zone for covid cases 
but they just, um, they were um, doing a, a story about mass debates throughout the years. And they went to the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic. And what they found uh, when the city of Phoenix imposed a mask requirement, uh, it, when the flu pandemic hit uh, Phoenix in 1918, they had 95% compliance. 95% compliance. In 1918. Yeah. You know what they didn't have in 1918? They didn't have Twitter. They didn't have Facebook. Facebook. Well, and notice how I, uh, how I started with the conversation of, oh, yeah, I posted on the Facebook page, Rand. He says, well, explain I mean, it to me. And so you're going to promote, and you promote this podcast on Facebook. Well, I, I know, and it's one of those, <laughs> and I, I struggle with it, Jason. I mean, it, it's a necessary it, evil, unfortunately. Yeah, to be as candid as, uh, as I can be right now, as far as, uh, you know, a, a commentator. Uh, that has a radio show that has an online publication and now an online podcast with you. Uh, That's the, the routes of which you get people to see it. And it's just one of those things until we can almost break the chain of having to go through those platforms of which where people are and get through the mud and the muck of everything else. It's just, it's the potential was there and unfortunately i think it has slipped through our fingertips of uh, utilizing some of this stuff uh, to the best of our ability to to move forward and it brings of- it brings up not to interrupt but it brings up a whole a much larger question we could almost do a whole podcast on this and that is the big question that has emerged within the last decade is whether uh big technology and democracy are compatible yeah well, uh, I, everybody's certainly entitled to their opinions of, uh, and now everybody's got the platform to share said opinions uh, very loudly. And it doesn't take long for some of those to get a lot of retweets, a lot of shares, and uh, all of a sudden it leads to um, movements and not always in, in favor of uh, progress. Jason Matthews are uh, uh, and Tyler Axis. I almost called you my guest. I guess you're my co-host on this podcast. My apologies <laughs> to you. Uh, all right. So I, I ham it out of the Senate because I, I think that they've been such enabling of uh, a number of the things, the norms that have been chipped away. Uh, the Roger Stone, you can go to the, as of now, as of this recording, we haven't heard anything about their thoughts on Portland. Uh, they've been silent and, you know, take any issue of controversy of failed leadership from the administration. They haven't heard much from any of them. Uh, well, we got an election coming up and I think all minds going into the 2020 election where, all right, this is going to be a difficult cycle for Democrats when it comes to the Senate. If you watch the the shift lately in polling, now granted it's middle of July, uh, it's starting to see optimism amongst the the Democratic Party of reclaiming the Senate. This morning, for example, uh, Joe Biden's campaign uh, dove in uh, and supports uh, uh, Susan Collins' opponent saying, look, it'd be great if we get the White House, but we can't just get the White House. We need to start getting and reclaiming some seats in the Senate to actually get stuff done. What's your thought on the state of the, the Senate right now? I hear Susan Collins is concerned about that, too. Very concerned. Brows <laughs> are furrowed, I assume. Uh, I, right now, the environment um, is, is very favorable to the Democrats, which was not what anybody anticipated going into this election year. Uh, and it's, it's precisely because of a combination of factors. Uh, the first thing is, um, starting out, the Democrats did get some star recruits, uh, especially in Arizona with Mark Kelly, um, the husband of uh, former Congresswoman Gabby Giffords, who we will all remember was tragically shot and, and, mm-hmm. and 
seriously injured in an assassination attempt. Um, and then, and then uh, also is a former astronaut. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he, he's right out of central casting. Uh, they were able to get um, the um, popular governor of Colorado, John Hickenlooper, although he's tripped a little bit in, in the last month or so. Big one out of Montana yeah. uh, with, 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 with Governor Steve Bullock. Um, but but the, the, what, what is so striking is the, um, and what's terrifying Republicans right now, and they have every right to be terrified, is by a three-to-one margin in the last quarter, Democratic Senate candidates um, outraised their Republican opponents. Um, all those Republican opponents, by the way, are sitting members of the Senate. And, and that fundraising juggernaut that the Democrats have put together is being fueled by small donors. Mm-hmm. And, and that's grassroots, what's the, yeah. and grassroots. Now, um, I think that there's, it's, it's probably, um, you know, nothing is a certainty in politics, but if you're a betting person right now, Arizona is going to probably go to the Democrats with Kelly. He's got about a nine to 11 point lead on average in the polls. Um, he, he had, he raised more money last quarter than his opponent, Senator Martha McSally has cash on hand. Put, to put that into perspective. Well, and we, we can't talk about Arizona without pointing out that McSally uh, was uh, lost the last election exactly. and then was, and that caused the uproar of, okay, why are you selecting her in this appointment right now when she just lost an election? So uh, there's McSally, clearly. McSally is an interesting case study in, in what has happened to Republican senators. Uh, she was, by all accounts, a pretty standard, you know, regular uh, member of the conservative club, uh, pretty rational. She'd buck her party in a few things, uh, but, but she went in all, went all in on Trump and, and adopted the Trump like rhetoric and, and went after the media. And uh, you know, one thing about Arizona, Arizona is an interesting state. Uh, Arizonans value their independence. They like Mavericks. Um, you, you, we heard that term a time or two back in 2012. Remember, um, J- John McCain, uh, Barry Goldwater, uh, and, uh, they like to have they, they, Morris Udall, who's a Democrat. They like to put up these independent, sometimes flinty Westerners. Uh, they don't like their politicians to always march in lockstep. Uh, and, and I think McSally is, is, uh, going up against some of the political culture in Arizona, but boy, I mean, she just went in all in on Trump and, and uh, Kelly's playing it for all it's worth. Plus the demographics in Arizona are changing. Um, you know, the growing Hispanic population. The, the state is now heavily urban, large suburban contingency there. Um, so, so he, he's favored uh, Colorado Hickenlooper is favored, although he ran in some ethics problems. Um, when he was uh, governor and that all came to light before the democratic primary, which gives a little bit of a lifeline to Republican incumbent, Cory Gardner, um, Montana, Steve Bullock, um, Bullock has been able to, um, buck national trends in the past. Uh, he was reelected. Uh, he was elected governor in 2012. Uh, even though Obama did not carry Montana, he was reelected governor in 2016, even though Trump won the state by 20 plus points. And right now he's outraised his uh, uh, Republican opponent, Steve Daines, um, in his leading within the margin of error. But he's, he's going to have a problem coming up here, and that is that case counts in Montana are going up. And as governor, he's going to face some difficult decisions. 
which will no doubt be used against them. Well, and one of those decisions, which again, I don't know why it seems like it's been difficult, but I, and I could be wrong here, so don't quote me, but I, I do believe that uh, Montana's got a mask mandate now uh, brought on by Governor Bullock. And as we've talked about the last few weeks about how politicized it's been just to put on a damn face mask to try to save not only yourself, but your family and friends. But unfortunately, the way politics is in 2020, I wouldn't be surprised if that's one of those decisions that might be used against him as this coronavirus pandemic continues to surge across not only his state, but the nation. Well, you have to see the Senate races in some ways are canaries in the coal mine to give us an indication of what we can expect as we move into November. And what I mean by that is at the presidential level, um, if, if the Democrats were to win control of the Senate uh, in the election, it would be the first time in 40 years that the Senate flipped in a presidential election year. The last time that happened was when Ronald Reagan won in a landslide and Republicans came in on his coattails. Uh, what's interesting is by general agreement going into this year, Arizona, Colorado, Maine, and North Carolina were the four states that were seen as the Senate battleground states. Uh, Susan Collins is in deep trouble in Maine. Um, right now. And, and the Democrats have a very strong candidate in the uh, uh, former House Speaker, uh, State House Speaker, uh, in Sarah Gideon, again, who is out raising Collins. Um, so, and then Tom Tillis in North Carolina. It, it, North Carolina is interesting. North Carolina always has a one-term senator. This is so bizarre. This is one of these little quirks. Uh, at least one Senate seat in, in, in North Carolina always flips every six years. And, and, Tom, and Tom Tillis uh, flipped the seat in, 20, in 2014, and now he's, now he's fighting uh, for his political life. But everybody was in agreement those four states were going to be the battleground states. But then what's ended up happening is that, that battleground map is, is widening. And now you're looking at Georgia, which has two Senate seats up because of a special election. And then you're looking at Iowa and now you have Montana and uh, progressives on Twitter celebrate at the prospect of Kentucky. We've talked about that not going to happen, right. um, but everybody was in agreement as well that uh, Democratic Senator Doug Jones in Alabama was, was had no chance at all of winning re-election. Uh, and funny thing happened this past week. Jones got the opponent he wanted. He got the former Auburn uh, coach, yeah. uh, Tuberville, got the Republican nomination, beating, who did he beat? Jeff Sessions. Yeah, Jeff Sessions. <laughs> Jeffrey, Jeff Sessions. <laughs> Jeffrey threw it all away. Jefferson Beauregard Sessions lost. Um, lost... Uh, his attempt at a comeback, uh, of course, for listeners will remember that he was uh, President uh, Trump's first attorney general. But and the, and I believe the first major uh, elected official to jump in was in support of Donald Trump's candidacy back in 2015-16. He was. And, and you know, I, it is hard to see Doug Jones pulling that rabbit out of the hat, but stranger things have happened. And, and what really got me was... Um, the primary was on Tuesday. Tuberville gets the nomination. Uh, and what does, what does the Alabama Democratic Party and, um, and, and uh, the Senator, uh, Senator Jones comes out with the next day is 
just this blistering attack on Tuberville, saying he had a roving eye when he was the coach at Auburn. Uh. He was always interviewing for other coaching jobs. He doesn't care about Alabama. He he um, protested a one-game suspension for a player who was accused of raping a child. That's the language. Good grief. Raping the child. And then they come back and say, and when he was coach of Auburn, he even lost to Vanderbilt. <laughs> that that was <laughs> – College football, man. I hope we get college football this year. I'm, I'm less optimistic, but that was somebody uh, said a long time observer of Alabama politics. That was the most stinging insult of all. <laughs> uh, and if you take a look at the number, just talking about college football, look, we can have a little fun on this show. Um, you take a look at the results from Alabama the other night, the area that Tuberville uh, performed the poorest was yeah. home to the university of Alabama. <laughs> <laughs> People don't forget, man, especially your alumni, you get up on Saturday mornings early to flip on college game day. If you're not out tailgating, it's a lifestyle. I, I, I get it, man. <laughs> it is. And, and what, why, why the Jones campaign wanted Tuberville was because Tuberville was also, when he left college football coaching, he got involved in uh, investing. Um, in starting some businesses and some investment firms uh, that left people holding the bag and, and there's some financial irregularities there. Uh, and so I think that has the potential to be the most blistering Senate campaign uh, of the cycle. Uh, and Jones, Jones's campaign is being led by veteran Democratic strategist Joe Trippi, uh, and they're going to go all out in the suburbs uh, they, they know Alabama very well, and Alabama has suburbs in Birmingham, Montgomery, and those areas. Uh, if, if Doug Jones, and we'll know the results of the Alabama Senate race early on election night, if Doug Jones manages to win re-election uh, in Alabama, it's going to be a Democratic tsunami. Again, uh, it's Alabama. I don't see that happening but stranger things have happened. It's funny you brought up suburbs. I know we don't have time to talk uh, about this, but yeah, we have, we've talked at length about how this is going to be an election that's decided by the suburbs. And you can uh, tell that somebody must've told that to uh, uh, president Donald Trump, because he tweeted out earlier this week about, of course, all the, all the slogans, all the bumper sticker uh, 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 moments of, you know, Joe Biden's going to defund the police, going to, you know, defund the military or, you know, disband the military. Also going to get rid of sub, uh, the suburbs. <laughs> just, uh, just like apparently that word and whatever the brief was about his campaign stuck with him that he had to use the word suburbs in it. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, uh, it's duly noted that uh, all eyes are on the suburbs across the country. Uh, you know, and one last thing we talk about Alabama and I saw an NBC wall street journal poll earlier this morning that was breaking down just the composition of uh, GOP voters. And uh, I want to get your take on this before we talk about a, a certain book that uh, top seller uh, in regards to uh, the family of the Trumps, uh, but the wall street journal and NBC poll this morning is talking about 53% of all Republican voters say they support Donald Trump over the party. Uh, 39% yeah. say they support party more than Trump. So with the presidency uh, and with the Donald Trump's candidacy, so goes the Republican Party as a whole, do you think? Let's go set up a Republican civil war in the event that the president loses reelection. Um, because 
I've given a lot of thought to this. Um, what, what happens uh, sometimes in political parties is you have such a dominant figure that emerges that the, when that dominant figure leaves the stage, the forces that that figure is unleashed um, is, is vying for control of the party. Uh, it happened with the Conservative Party in Great Britain in the aftermath of Margaret Thatcher's technicolor uh, premiership. Um, and the party was, was crippled by it um, for the next 15 years. Um, you had it in France with de Gaulle when he left the stage. And they actually referred to de Gaulle's political party as the Gaullists. Uh, Argentina, we brought up earlier in, in this podcast, and they had the Peronists. Um, you know, the question is, and this is something that the Lincoln Project's been, been talking about, is, is the fact that is the Republican Party going to be the Trumpist party? Are they, are they going to be more Trump than Republican after Trump leaves the stage? Uh, you know, there's been a political or there is a political realignment that's taking place right now in the country. Um, I shared with you earlier this week the PowerPoint by Bruce Melman, and I refer to him a lot. And he was a, he was a George uh, W. Bush administration official. And, and he is a, um, an astute observer of American politics. And he, he brings this point up where he's saying there is a realignment that is taking place in this country along class and educational lines. Uh, college educated whites are moving over to the democratic party and non-college educated whites are moving firmly into the Republican party. And the Republican Party under Trump has become more nationalist and more populist. Does that continue uh, after Trump leaves the stage? Uh, it remains to be seen. But what it does do is it makes it very hard for Republican Senate candidates and congressional candidates to try to make a break from Trump. Because in 1996, uh, the Democrats were on the verge of taking over the U.S. Senate because Bill Clinton was having, had such a commanding lead in the polls in that election. The Republicans decided in October that they, were, they changed their tactics, their approach. They cut Bob Dole off, uh, left him for dead, and said, you know, we're going to need to be a check on Bill Clinton. That was their argument. We need to be a check on Bill Clinton. Uh, the Republicans, Mitch McConnell will do that in a heartbeat yeah. if he can. I don't know if Donald Trump is going to allow him to do that. And with 53% of Republicans saying that they're supporting Trump, um, and, and he has already called everybody in Washington the swamp, part, swamp creatures, uh, it's going to make it that much harder for Republicans to, to cut bait from, from the president. It, and I know, like I said, time's ticking here, but it's interesting because uh, we've had the discussion about how powers maybe with the realignment moving away from Washington back into the states and where you have some of Republican governors leading in this coronavirus and this pandemic with some of their uh, decisions. And uh, it was a Republican governor. I think it was uh, Governor Hogan uh, mm -hmm. this week coming out and, and pushing back on uh Vice President Pence and um, the 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 Trump White House on how they handled things, mm -hmm. almost like okay, well, there's there's the default lines right there. You have a Republican well, Hogan, governor coming and saying, "Look, you guys uh, uh, didn't really do a good job here." Hogan Hogan has already said he's he's most likely going to run for the Republican nomination in twenty. 
24, it's hard to see where he goes in the Republican Party. He's more of a John Kasich-type Republican. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting about Hogan is Hogan comes from a political dynasty, as do two other notable Trump critics in the Republican Party. Hogan's father was a Republican congressman who um, actually backed the three articles of impeachment against Richard Nixon. Uh, the two other Republicans, Mitt Romney, we Mitt know Romney. well. Yeah. Uh, his father, of course, was uh, ran for president in 1968, was governor of Michigan. But the one that's getting a lot of attention right now is... Cheney. Liz Cheney. Liz Cheney. Uh, and Liz Cheney is positioning herself for a post-Trump Republican Party. Now, some people think that she has her eye on the White House. I happen to think she has her eye on House Speakership. Um, and and that's what that's her long-term game plan. That was actually her father's long-term game plan was to become House Speaker. So I think that's the angle that she's she's working on. But she's been very noticeable in the harshness of her criticisms of Trump, particularly on the Russian bounty scandal. Right. And on national security issues. Jason, I got to switch gears here. What are you reading this week? And there, there's a uh, there's a uh, book that uh, has come out, and it was uh, a roller coaster of a ride for it to get published. And now the publisher is saying uh, this is by far the biggest selling book. It's exceeding expectations, and it's written by Mary Trump. Uh, why are people clamoring for this? I, it, here's my take on it, as just an observer and a commentator, is people or have been painted a picture of what Donald Trump is and who he is, who he claims to be, you know, this man, this billionaire that's very successful, but there's a lot of questions as to the way he interacts, his, what appears to be a lack of empathy towards just uh, other people's plights when it comes to life in general, that we want to get a bigger picture about the, the life uh, of and the upbringing of Donald Trump, and now they're getting it, and it's all scandalous. It's almost like you could, uh, you know, like sans through the hourglass or the days of our lives in the the Trump family. It, it, I mean, you are you reading it the same way I am? As people are just, oh, I, I, I really know what the book. I I have the book. Oh, oh. I, I got the book. I got the book for my mother, who wants wants to read it. I'm yeah. seeing my mother this weekend, and I'm giving her the book. I haven't cracked it open. Okay, uh, it's political pornography. <laughs> that's what it is uh, i will probably read it eventually i'm still reading about winston churchill and in in the splendid and the wild but uh i've i've um i've i've watched mary mary trump's uh, interviews um and and i've read um read excerpts of it um and, and just from news reports and, and what it does what what um what it confirms uh, is that Donald Trump is yet one of many presidents, pick a number, who has daddy issues at the end of the day. Explain. I, I mean, you don't have to explain the, the, the Trump daddy uh, situation. No. I mean, I there, there is a, there is a fascinating trend in American, in the American presidency. And, and you don't get to be president without being a complex individual, a complicated person. But, but, there are probably more presidents that had issues with their father than not. So if we have a little bit of time here, I'll break this down. Abraham Lincoln, the most famous one of all. Um, Abraham Lincoln, his mother died when he was uh, an infant. His father remarried. Uh, he revered his stepmother. His stepmother uh, was his mother. Um, but when his father died, he never talked about his father to anybody. When his father died, he never even went to Indiana for the funeral. Never talked to his father. 
Um, you take a look at um, Theodore Roosevelt's father was an alcoholic who drank himself to death. Uh, Harry Truman had a very complex relationship with his father. Uh, then, of course, there's Richard Nixon. Uh, Richard Nixon's father was verbally abusive, and there's speculation he may have also been physically abusive, not to mention then Gerald Ford's father, a biological father, abandoned him, uh, came back into his life when he was in his 20s, and Gerald Ford said, I want nothing to do with you. Ronald Reagan's father was an alcoholic. Bill Clinton never knew his father, but dealt with an alcoholic stepfather. The Bushes had their own dynamic. And Barack Obama, of course, his biological father came in and out of his life, and, and that, that really shaped him. Ronald Reagan, this, if, if I've got a minute here, I'll tell you this story. Ronald Reagan's father um, was a shoe salesman who couldn't keep a job and was an alcoholic. And Ronald Reagan, um, it came out later, uh, and um, he told his wife, Nancy, this only once was he came home from school one day, he was about 13, 14 years old, and he found his father passed out on the doorstep, uh, laying in the snow. The snow was falling, he was covered in snow, and Ronald Reagan told Nancy, he picked him up, he was soaking wet, he was passed out, he dragged his father to bed, undressed him, um, washed him up to warm him up, put his pajamas on and put him in bed and then covered up for his father, telling his mother that, that dad wasn't feeling well. And he told Nancy Reagan that story once and never talked about it again. Well, yeah, it, that is a very unique, uh, uh, I don't want to say characteristic, but upbringing uh, that isn't exactly taught in schools. No. <laughs> you don't want to talk about presidential uh, history and just the psychology of these men. Yeah, right. And they've all been men so far who have been president. Now, uh, you know, what Mary Trump is coming out and saying is that Fred Trump was, was, uh, basically a tyrant, um, a sociopath did not love his children. His children had to vie for his attention. Um, so she, she, and, and this is a woman that, that, yeah, you could say she has an ax to grind because there was a terrible dispute about, um, the inheritance in the Trump family. But this is also a woman who has, um, a, a PhD in psychology, right. uh, has written, ha, is, is an expert in schizophrenia is, is a well-known, well-respected academic in her own right. And she's writing this. What I think it does though, uh, more than anything, um, is it's not going to affect the outcome of the election. It, it's no. just not. Uh, but what it does do is it, it, um, it's in the news. And as a result of that, um, it's another distraction for Trump when he's running out of time right now. Um, we're about a hundred days out, a little over a hundred days out from the election and the white house is having to respond to what she's saying. It, you know, and, and to that point, as we close out here, a distraction for him, but, uh, unless I've missed it, he hasn't commented. Uh, he, he hasn't, hasn't taken a Twitter on this yet. And that's uh, unusual for uh, this president. That, that, that's, that's true. He has not gone out there and gone after her yet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jason, uh, that was a recap of this week draining as it is each and every week we try to uh recap i mean not the conversation just the weeks the events of which we're living through is just geez one thing after another do you get the sense that it is weighing and wearing on people uh, out i'm in fargo i see it out here do you see it out in bismarck as well or is it people are just kind of getting by and 
Yeah, you know what? We'll get through uh, just quickly. What, what's your sense of how I people think, are I think what's, what's worrying on people right now is what's going to happen with school. Uh, that, that that's what you're seeing. That's what you're hearing is it's what's going to happen in school. Um, you know, the, the, the state has, you know, given these guidelines to the, to the districts um, and all the districts are scrambling and, and Bismarck went ahead and sent out a, a survey to parents and instructors, which is, do you want to do half days? Do you want to do every other day? Do you, you know, how are you, you want your kids to eat their lunch? Do you want them to allow any visitors in the classroom? I think that it's just the uncertainty that that's wearing. Yeah. That's wearing on everybody. There's an anxiety level that uh, is certainly prominent. But, I can tell that the, the whiteness in my beard has gotten <laughs> more noticeable and I blame it on the, the, the events of which we're living through. Well, I think there, there's just the, this was already, shaping up to be um before covid an exhaustion election that was going no matter who the democratic nominee was going to be they were going to be running against trump on the basis of you know aren't you exhausted by this man imagine the next four years um and now covid has hit and of course now everybody and then with the racial you know the protests over george floyd and, and racial unrest in the country um the country is just exhausted yeah and there's no break from it because it's on your phones. It's, it's in front of you constantly on the computer. Uh, you know, you used to be able in the 1960s with all the turmoil, you'd read, you'd watch the evening news, you'd read the newspaper, but you went about your day. Yeah. And now it's it, like you say, it's, all, it's, it's all consuming all the time. Um, it's, it's at your fingertips, uh, no matter w- if you're out, uh, having a, a glass of wine, you're yeah. scrolling through and saying, what's the latest it's, um, you just can't seem to escape.